Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. Typically, we imagine a healthy space as being free from bacteria, and we implement cleaning protocols and antimicrobial products to achieve this. But what if that's not as effective as we think it is? Can we intentionally design environments to withstand today's bacterial and viral threats? Today, I'm talking to Jack Gilbert, professor at the University of San Diego. We discuss his 2013 study conducted at the University of Chicago's Center for Care and Discovery and how these findings challenge the conventional understanding of what a healthy space is and could be. I also chat with Rosie Broadhead, a sportswear clothing designer from the UK, who's pioneering the efforts in functional materials and the ability to weave probiotics into textiles. I know, right? This is episode one, Give the Buildings Yogurt. Hey, Jack. Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast. You are my first ever guest on my first ever podcast. So welcome. We're excited to have you here. Um, Really, I should just be honest and tell you that you're really one of the most anticipated guests of the entire season. (laughs) First and most anticipated. That's fantastic. Thank you Most anticipated. Yeah. Very nice to hear. So to kick things off, I want to discuss a concept that perhaps isn't familiar in the design industry, but is thriving in the health and wellness community. We're talking about microbiomes. A microbiome is simply the collection of microorganisms in a particular environment, whether they be inside your gut, on your skin, or even the chair you're sitting on. It's basically a balancing act of good bacteria and bad bacteria. And if one side gets carried away, it can have massive implications on human development, immunity, and nutrition. This intersection of design and microbiology is pretty awesome. And you've been at the center of it for some time now, right? Yeah, for about the past uh, 10 to 15 years, it was a strange um, compliments. I, I, I was hanging out with a program officer from the Sloan Foundation, Paula Olszewski, um, when she was visiting one of her other grantees. And uh, I, I didn't really believe the science that was being uh, done at the time. I thought it was a little bit uh, wishy-washy and not quite really you know, high integrity science. And she said, and I was, I was relaying this to her, and she said, well, what would you do then? And I was like, oh, yeah, we could do something interesting. Well, here's an experiment that would actually work out. And and so it was, um, it was uh, opportunistic. <laughs> yeah. So the experiment we're chatting about today actually involves this newborn baby building, right? So brand new construction, no people. Uh, and the team went in and grabbed samples for over a year. Yeah, we, we did uh, about two or three months prior to opening. So the uh, hospital when it was um, uh, in gestation state. <laughs> and then yes. when it was birthed and the people moved in. I love that analogy. I'm going to use that from now on. Um, <laughs> We, we continued for another 10 to 11 months. So we had this with this year to you know, just over a year study design. It was it was um, uh, an opportunity to generate preliminary data that turned into something a lot more interesting. Yeah. Opportunity for lots of Q-tips. Lots of Q-tips <laughs> and lots of postdocs. You know, we got through yeah. personnel 
because it was every single day they had to go into the hospital. They were swabbing all the surfaces in the hospital, interacting with the nursing staff and the patients and getting samples from them. It was very intense. Yeah, Yeah. we we burnt out a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Um, What was interesting to me, though, was that you discovered as patients occupied their rooms, they actually had a profound impact on the microbial environment around them. So to me, this kind of stands against the common notion that microbes, pathogens, et cetera, overtake our individual microbiome, as we've kind of understood up until this point. That's correct. I mean, each person was emitting between 30 to 40 million bacterial cells an hour. Um, and this is, you know, uh, fantastic work from Jordan Petcher up at Yale, who's done that kind of quantification. And so, you know, when the patients move into their patient room, and these are these are high-end um, hospital rooms, right? Yeah, with an ensuite, a beautiful view of uh, of Lake Michigan or the or the city, and so these are lovely, lovely spaces um, for an unfortunate visit. Um, but the, each time a patient moved into their room, they colonized it with their own microbial detritus, if you will, the the cells that were being released from their body every time they breathed out every every yeah. skin cell that was sloughed off. Um, but it, what was most interesting for us is that. The prior occupant's microbiome, the bacteria that were, you know, uh, indicative of the person who was in there previously, were still present, albeit in very, very small concentrations in the hospital room. So the cleaning practices prior to the new hospital patient moving in didn't completely eradicate the signature. Um, But within an hour or two, the patient's own bacterial community had completely eradicated any signature of the prior occupant, purely based on the, the sheer volume of microbial matter that each patient was emitting. Huh. It's interesting that even after all that cleaning, it didn't totally erase the previous patient. But what we're hinting at is that maybe that's not so much of a bad thing. So what do you think the big takeaway is here? Yeah, I mean, um, the big takeaway was a big takeaway in, say, 2016, 2017. You know, the fact that we are literally just shedding microbes all the time. I Hopefully, thanks to the pandemic, if you will, um, the uh, the uh, people understand that regularly now. You know, as soon as you interact with a space, you are shedding microorganisms and viruses such as SARS-CoV-2 into that environment in a regular, uh, you know, incredibly high density in a very regular way. And so, you know, um, from our perspective, it meant that there's no such thing as a sterile room. Um, as soon as humans occupy that space, pretty much whatever they're wearing, no matter how hard they try, they will be emitting their own microbial signature into that environment. Um, and we can um, abrogate that. Right? We can dampen it down by using sterilization approaches, by using um, high-intensity air filtration, such as the, you know, the high uh, the HEPA HVAC systems. We can, you know, we can sterilize surfaces. We can put uh, antibacterial surface materials like the copper and, and various other metal materials or antibiotics that on surfaces um, to dampen down the signal, but it never, ever eradicates it. It just mm. reduces the probability that you'll interact with a microorganism from that environment. And that was really telling for us because it overturned the, you know, the current ideology or the ideology at the time that we could just sterilize these surfaces. And then if we did that once a day or so, that was fine. Well, as soon as you sterilize a surface, within an hour, we were seeing upwards of 500,000 cells per square inch. Right. Yeah. So um, it, as long as there was a human occupant in that room, those surfaces were never, ever sterile. Clean. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the uh. worst part was that the, the, when the people's bacteria left their body from their respiratory tract, from their lungs and their mouths or their skin, the bacteria that did survive 
bear in mind that vast majority of microorganisms died, you know, um, as soon as they landed in that cold, dry, hostile environment of, you know, the floor or the bed rail or the light switch. It's a nasty environment for life, you know, designed that way to a certain extent. But as soon as the organisms that did land there, some of them survived. We found out that the, the ones that did survive were often the nastier ones, you know, to use the vernacular. That, you know, these were bugs that had antibiotic resistance that mm-hmm. could adapt to that, you know, very harsh ecosystem and, and survive, albeit in a in a seed-like state, right? They encrust themselves in this little barrier and hunker down and wait for in, in conditions to improve. Um, and so uh, that really opened our eyes to the potential of the environment of the hospital to actually uh, promote the growth of bugs that which could be potentially harmful to humans. Um, the opposite of what you might expect. Ways Jack has blown my mind so far. One, there is no such thing as a clean space if a human's in the room. Two, Scary fact, even the best cleaning procedures we have leave behind the most aggressive and dangerous pathogens. Conclusion so far, so we cover the whole space in tinfoil then? I'd love to talk about materials for a minute. I think a lot of designers are optimistic about using antimicrobial finishes in their spaces, but the jury is out on how effective these actually are at mitigating harmful bacteria. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, the problem is we don't really know. Right? If, if, if you have a copper surface and a bacteria lands on it, it's likely to die. And that's good, right? Um, for the yep. vast majority of cases in a hospital, if we can kill them, that's probably better, right, than uh, yes. other times. Because, you know, you've got open wounds and, and microbes are opportunistic, so they, they could cause problems. But um, um, in, the, in the long run, covering an entire hospital, the floors, the surfaces, the walls, even high-touch areas uh, with copper would be prohibitively expensive and potentially very difficult to achieve. Um, and the new materials that are impregnated with uh, a bactericidal elements and virucidal elements that kill those bacteria and viruses. Um, I would love to see the evidence that they are working the way they say, but I oftentimes not enough rigorous studies are done to demonstrate their efficacy actively. And so it's possible that we could create an entirely bactericidal building, right? That's possible. Is it probable that it will work in all instances? Well, I, I have my doubts. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'd love to see the data to support those conclusions categorically. Mm-hmm. In, in lieu of that, um, in lieu of the opportunity to potentially kill everything, uh, we have the other uh, uh, angle where we could augment that environment to make it um, less likely that dangerous organisms will survive and thrive, will, you know, colonize and propagate in those environments. And if we can wipe those out that possibility, maybe not kill them, but stop them from propagating as readily as they would normally do, that mm-hmm. in and of itself could be hugely impactful, and which leads us on to potentially living probiotic solutions for buildings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I was really excited to talk about this augmentation that you were speaking of because I think, you know, it's every designer's dream and and vision and frankly mission to create a really safe space, especially for those unfortunate visits to, you know, hospital buildings and critical care units and and things of that nature. So I want to make sure that we're talking that the bad guys, so to speak, or the, you know, really virulent bacteria is sort of subdued, but 
we also want to make sure that we're leaving room for the good guys, yes? So yes. when you speak of this augmentation, we kind of have to ask designers to go on this huge paradigm shift from, oh my gosh, there's you know bacteria, to no, 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 this is actually a good thing. And, and there are actually colonizations of, of bacteria that are in fact really good for us and good for our body. So I'd, I'd love to hear sort of the work that you've been um, doing and, and some of the ideations that you've had on this kind of this augmentation of space. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, a lot of it speaks to a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't work, right? Yep. So, um, you know, in an operating room, if we've cut you open, um, yeah, there's possibly there's dangerous organisms in that environment. And if they get inside the wound, it's possible they could cause infection. Um, and so those kind of environments, maybe we do want to try and keep them as bactericidal as possible. But other environments, um, it's possible that um, uh, adding bacteria back into the ecosystem could improve immune responses in certain patients. We're already testing this in young children, right? So um, there's several recent studies that have demonstrated that exposing young children to um, a rich microbial ecosystem can have beneficial effects upon their health by reducing chronic immune diseases like asthma, but also potentially by reducing the spread of infectious disease. And so we're really interested in that second part. Can we add bacteria into the environment that will reduce the likelihood that infectious bacteria, ba bacterial pathogens, mm -hmm. will, will survive and propagate. And so in the context of that, we've actually been exploring um, adding in bacillus spores, so bacillus subtilis mm -hmm. and other species of bacillus, which are, for all intents and purposes, um, benign, i.e. they have very, very, very low probability of, of causing even uh, opportunistic infection in a human. Uh, but if we add those into the environment, they create a bacterial lawn, if you will, uh, a rainforest on a surface, so that when a pathogen lands in that rainforest, it's akin to taking a Ponsettia houseplant and throwing it into uh, a rainforest in, in Brazil <laughs> and, yeah, and expecting it to yeah. survive and grow. It's very unlikely to do so. It would be outcompeted, right? Right. So we're trying to drive up that competitive edge that the hospital environment has um, to prevent those pathogens from growing in that ecosystem. And if we yeah. can do that, and our preliminary evidence suggests that we can, that could have a paradigm-shifting effect on how we manage those environments. Yeah. Um, and to speak to SARS-CoV-2, if I may, uh, um, uh, you know, a very relevant trajectory, we're, we're identifying um, in our own studies and in, in stunning work coming out of St. Jude's Hospital um, down in Tennessee, um, uh, with uh, Jason Roche, that certain um, bacteria can play Trojan horse to uh, SARS-CoV-2. We've known this about flu for a while. Certain respiratory bacteria, the, the flu particle can stick to the outside of the bacteria and, um, and, and, and then hitch a ride into the environment and survive longer outside of the body of the host um, and therefore potentially be picked up more readily um, when they're stuck to the outside of the, of the bacterium. Um, and SARS-CoV-2 is seemingly, based on our preliminary data, does exactly the same thing. So SARS-CoV-2 is hitching a ride on respiratory bacteria like Streptococcus pneumoniae or, or Staphylococcus aureus and surviving longer in the outside because of that interaction. Then that will play a significant role in helping us to understand how to mitigate it. Maybe we need targeted antibiotics or maybe we need to create microbial lawns in buildings um, to prevent those strep pneumoniae and staph aureus bugs from growing. 
which will prevent the transmission of potentially virulent viruses such as flu and, yeah. and, and SARS-CoV-2. Jack has blown my mind continued. Three, we don't know the effectiveness of antimicrobial materials. Four, creating competition between microbes could be an awesome solution. Conclusions? We're going to plant a garden. So how do you imagine these lawns to, to look, right? So I'll, I'll bring it back into sort of a more creative avenue of just, I can already see the wheel of wheels spinning for designers and, and trying to think of, you know, how, how would I design one of these lawns and what would I do? And in your interview with Ted, um, you would actually mention that you had thought of them as spheres and, and placing these um, spheres into the built environment. But can you imagine that, you know, these spheres would be in paint? Would it be in um, specific materiality? Could you create this, you know, beautiful artistic sculpture on the wall? Like how, how do you envision those being placed? Yeah, we've been we've been playing around with those concepts and uh, updating them and manipulating them for the last few years. Um, and uh, there's uh, we have a collaboration with a group at Imperial University in London in the United Kingdom who are um, creating uh, discs that have uh, bacillus spores impregnated into them. There's been a fantastic uh, group study out of MIT where they've taken um, different surface materials and in, and a layered bacillus, um, uh, genetically manipulated bacillus into the surface of those materials and demonstrate they could have efficacy. Uh, we're working with colleagues here at UCSD to create liquid polymer materials, which can um, then cover a surface such as a door handle um, and have um, bacillus impregnated into them. The, the complication in all of these is the, um, the, the life needs water, right? You know, we talk about the moon and Mars, and if you're going to find life, you're going to find yeah, you have to have water first. Yep. The same is true, right? Um, we can impregnate as many bacillus spores into surface materials as we want. If there's no moisture there, then there's no life. And so we're really trying to fine-tune that argument. The current strategy we're using is to um, add bacillus spores to cleaning products, right? Um, and there's several cleaning products on the market right now which do exactly this. Although the evidence supporting them has been limited, we are currently demonstrating that we can do hypothesis-driven rigorous experimentation to, to prove that they may work. But if you if you spread a liquid cleaning product onto a surface that has bacillus spores in it, you're automatically augmenting the water availability in that environment and therefore allowing those spores to germinate for a period of time. And they'll have that potential competitive exclusion principle, right? They'll competitively exclude the pathogens under that environment. And that could be beneficial. Uh, we know effectively that bacillus, um, when it's growing on certain surfaces, can produce antifungal compounds. So if we can, if we can allow for even periodic growth of those bacillus, you know, a little bit of moisture every now and again, um, uh, they should be able to outcompete most molds and fungi if they're in high enough abundance. So um, that, you know, that's an element. Or we can genetically engineer, as MIT have done those organisms to produce specific antifungal, anti-mole compounds, which would um, you know, promote or um, improve upon what we've already seen with composite materials like MDF being impregnated with chemicals that are antifungal, right? So there's, there's many different strategies that we can use in our toolbox as we develop them to create uh, compound solutions, right? So you know, we have maybe a living, breathing surface 
that um, also has antifungals built in or genetically engineered organisms that can produce them. I do think it's fascinating to even just begin to think through how can our materials perform even better. And to your point, having an antifungal strategy, but also has a possibility for it to be a living surface that you can interact with. Because one of the concepts I was really fascinated by was that, I mean, we think of probiotics so often as just an internal, you know, I had my yogurt this morning. I had, um, you know, my kombucha um, is my personal favorite, (laughs) but it's really the microbiome and, and, and creating sort of this healthy environment around us and really this healthy ecosystem is not just about what's inside our gut. It's actually what we're touching. It's what we're smelling. You want that, you know, outside environment around us to be also really filled with good bacteria and create, again, this idea of, of a rainforest around us is, is really good. And so I'm excited. Yeah. I just think this is kind of the new wave of materials. And, and this is sort of, I think de- designers are going to start demanding manufacturers to start making this stuff right away. I think it's I think it's huge, right? I mean, yeah, your your skin and your lungs are an immense immune organ, and yes. you know, for, especially for young children, infants growing up in those environments. And this is where we started thinking about it, right? Providing an immunostimulatory built environment could help those children to uh, develop in ways that would eradicate the uh, chronic diseases such as asthma, food yeah. allergies, eczema. Um, that are, we believe, uh, significantly increased because of the lack of that immune stimulation. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, while, all, while things like COVID um, and our, you know, obsessive cleaning now probably won't have much of an effect upon most children, yeah. uh, we think that's very important, right? Um, creating environments in the future which are uh, beneficial generally, we think will have a significant impact on long-term health in our population. We can give the buildings yogurt. Really, we could put the yogurt in a million different finish applications, but we can't count out cleaning products just yet. And it is possible to view bacteria as a change agent for good. The possibilities seem endless. This is the future of materials, but who's actually doing this? So at this point in my research, I was dying to find someone in the contract textile world who was already pioneering this new frontier. There's so many other architectural finishes to look into, but you know, I like furniture and I lived for upholstery updates, let's be real. So I stumbled into Rosie, a researcher and fashion designer from the UK who specializes in sportswear. This girl is on another level. Her skin series focuses on the therapeutic benefit of incorporating seaweed into clothing, and now she's studying how to do the same with probiotics. So my background is in material development and design within the fashion industry. I've worked for designers for luxury brands and R&D in sportswear, where the focus was very much about increasing speed, comfort and durability. So through working in the fashion industry, I've been interested in this interaction between textiles and skin. And I started to notice the problem with the chemicals that were used on these functional textiles. So, for example, biocide agents, which essentially kill all of the bacteria on your skin, including the positive bacteria. And not only this, these antibacterial finishes often have been proven to be detrimental to the skin microbiome. 
Sound familiar? It seems we really want to take a bazooka to bacteria, but it's kind of a big gun and the casualties tend to be more than we bargained for. So with this in mind, um, it led to my interest in the skin specifically. And I began to focus on exploring how we could add function to our textiles by uh, looking at what is already natural on our bodies. So right now I work with a microbiologist. His name is Dr. Chris Calwett. He is based at Ghent University. And together we develop probiotic clothing, which means incorporating bacteria into textiles through an approach that includes science, technology, and design. So there's definitely opportunity here, but how does it work? Once the bacteria is encapsulated to the textiles, it will remain dormant until it comes into contact with moisture and, in this case, the sweat on our bodies. So once they are activated, they will start to colonize on the body. And this change in skin microbiome is associated with reducing your body odor, encouraging cell renewal, and it's also really has great potential improving the skin's immune system. So the idea is to replace chemicals in functional textiles and also potentially uh, reduce the need to wash your clothes so regularly. This episode is sponsored by Interwoven, coming to the market in 2021. Interwoven's passion lies in challenging the status quo in health. Interwoven thinks about the design of space differently and believes that by putting people at the heart of everything we do, we can help deliver the best results. Visit interwovenhealth.com to learn more. Although the probiotic project focuses on the skin microbiome specifically, I'm interested in how the ingredients we put on our skin can impact our bodies as a whole. So transdermal medication is the administration of drugs by placing a patch on the skin and it's absorbed through the skin into the bloodstream. An example of this I really like is the collaboration between Professor Ipsita Roy and designer Sarah DaCosta, who researched the potential of a bra that could deliver drugs transdermally and more directly to the problem. So I think it's a nice example of how design and science meet. While Rosie is an expert in the fashion industry, let's bring this back to our tribe. How can we utilize her concepts in the interior space? So through developing textiles with probiotics, I was also looking at what other ways I can include therapeutic or beneficial ingredients into textiles and what textiles do we come in contact with on a daily basis. So this made me think about my interiors, the textiles I wear next to my skin every day. And that's what gave me the idea to look at um, chairs and specifically camping chairs for my new project. It's in collaboration with a set designer, Tom Schneider, to develop a foldable camping chair. And the textile material is made of a custom knitted fiber and the yarns are incorporated with seaweed. And I've chosen seaweed because it's a more responsible yarn to use as it's quite uh, resourceful. And it also holds interesting therapeutic properties, including antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and is also really rich in vitamins, minerals, and amino acids. The CHAIR project aims to highlight the intimate relationship between the skin as a permeable membrane covering the body. I feel like every material that we are in contact with with our body is important. So I think that furniture isn't an exception. And the materials I was developing more recently include seaweed, vitamins, vitamin E specifically, and zinc. And I thought that these are very interesting properties to have next to the skin, but also maybe when you're camping, you're outdoors, 
there there is an interest in how you can have materials next to your skin that are also beneficial in furniture and potentially in the home as an interior material then then you may be in in loungewear for example then it may be more relatable to have the skin on skin contact and also what, what i would say is that it's also drawing attention to what materials do to the body so if if a chair can have these therapeutic ingredients inside i think it will make people more aware okay what are the jeans that i'm wearing what is the t-shirt that i'm wearing next to my skin and how can i change that Exactly. Interacting with the furniture just got way healthier. But now that we have more awareness of what materials our body can come in contact with, think of the implications of an entire room, an entire building. As we continue to understand microbiomes and how humans interact with them, the health benefits could be limitless. From an innovation standpoint, the textile industry has been developing new solutions for antiviral materials and protective clothing this year in particular. I have heard a lot of exciting concepts such as engineers in Canada researching the potential of the antiviral properties in a particular algae. And I think going forward the future of textiles is about developing materials more locally and considering a circular system. For me my focus is on materials that are healthy for the skin with a minimal impact on the environment which means using minerals vitamins that have skincare benefits. But hopefully in the future of the textiles industry and interiors industry will be less about killing every organism on the body but using properties to nurture the body. Jack and Rosie have proven it's totally possible to promote positive physical changes not only in the spaces we design but in the people who occupy them. That my friends is a massive opportunity. This season has left many feeling helpless, hopeless and small due to the invasion of harmful bacteria that's affected our entire world. So I get that in this moment seeing microbes as a good thing can feel like a stretch. But I encourage you to find an alternative way to look at what we're dealing with and see that the battle for creating safe, healthy spaces is not lost. This is the classic moment where innovation meets design, where the choices a designer can make not only influence feeling well, but actually being well. We just need the right tools. podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Special thanks to Jack and Rosie for being our guests today. You can check out more information and how to follow them in our show notes. Also, thanks to Interwoven for sponsoring this very first episode. For more inspo and thought-provoking content, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.